I have a wonderful new guest for Church and Culture. I've known her for quite a while. Her name is Karen Swallow Pryor, and for many, many years taught at Liberty University in Lynchburg. Regina was kind enough to have me down to talk about beauty. And she has become, over the years, one of the best-known evangelical readers of literature, interpreters of culture, and promoters of beauty in the evangelical tradition and faith. The book we're going to talk about today is her latest. It's entitled The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. When I knew her, she had just published her first major book called Booked, Literature and the Soul of Me, wonderful book. She went on to write Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, poet, reformer, abolitionist. And On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. I believe in that. She's written for most major magazines, newspapers, websites. She is a contributing editor for Comment, a founding member of the Pelican Project and senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. She and her husband live on a 100-year-old homestead in central Virginia, dogs, chickens, and a lot of books. Karen, welcome to Church and Culture. Yeah, it's so great to speak with you again. It has been years since we've known one another, and it just sounds like I heard your voice yesterday talking. Well, I keep my eye on you and remember your voice very well. I keep my <laughs> eye on what you're doing because I know it's it's such a gift to all of us who care about Christianity and culture. Uh, but, you know, when, we, when I read your book, uh, I realized it was going to be kind of hard to sort of summarize because it has a vast sweep and it's, it's a, a narrative that encompasses uh, everything from history, spirituality, to literature, poetry, co- TV commercials, films, uh, your experiences in your life, experience of others. It's it's just the kind of book I love. And so, wonderful. So I want to begin though with your sub subsection and one of your first chapters entitled Metaphors Are Life. Now, that's probably not obvious to many listeners. So could you unpack why metaphors are life? I love that you started there. We are, we, you are a mutual word lover. So um, no <laughs> yes. one else has brought that up that I've been interviewed by. So, I mean, one of the sort of, underlying uh, assumptions of my book um, is, and I, I talk about it a little bit, is that all language is metaphorical. Um, and we don't, you know, we use language so much, and we, we all remember from, you know, from eighth grade what a metaphor is, but it's easy to forget that all words, even the ones we don't think of as uh, literally metaphorical, are signs. They, they stand for something. Um but also even just more everyday metaphors like running to the store or taking off uh, for work. Uh, those are little phrases that, you know, once we stop and think about them, they're obviously metaphors that we've used so much that we've... Chilling out and reading a book. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and well, so- metaphors, as you say, are created by the imagination. You talk a great deal about the imagination uh, and you quote one of my favorite books, Coleridge Biographia Literaria, which is to, to me puts you in a in a very distinctive literary and uh, how I should not say philosophical tradition because you made it clear you're not a philosopher, but yet you touch on those things and you talk about the importance of imagination to all of our thinking. Uh, could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great um, segue because, um, because going back to the metaphor, you know, metaphors are life, um, we can't function as human beings without using our imagination. Um, and that doesn't always mean in the sense of that we think of as being creative or artistic, even though we all have those capabilities, but just simply in, imaging something, having a vision of something, even if it's a 
coffee date we're going to have tomorrow is a way that we use our imagination. Um, and of course, Coleridge was not only a poet, but he was a philosopher. And so he understood language and metaphor and imagination in a deeply philosophical way. And I feel like I'm a latecomer to the romantics, but Yes, you are. And I was there before <laughs> you. I was there way before you. You were. You were. You, you use, um, you make a very important, useful distinction between, and you draw on M.H. Abrams' famous book, Mirror and Lamp, about how in the past, imagination was thought in terms, was using, attempting to be a mirror. Whereas, beginning with the Romantic Age, that is in the late 18th century, early 19th, it became understood as a lamp, which I think is very helpful to people understanding the case you're making for imagination. Yeah, so we can unpack that a little bit. I mean, another similar saying to thinking of imagination as a mirror is that old saying that art imitates life. Um, but if we think of imagination more as the romantics did, that it's like a lamp, in that sense, again, we're, we're familiar with that, the reverse, life imitates art, because imagination does shape the way that we understand the world, um, and it has sort of that a ripple effect where if we're paying attention or perceiving certain things, we're going to understand and, and imagine different things, and then that imagination draws our attention and perceptions uh, forward, and so imagination has a way of, of shaping our understanding of reality. Now, this is where the title comes becomes pertinent, the evangelical imagination. And this, I think, is the great achievement of your book, is that it takes the history of evangelicalism, starting basically with the Wesleys and Methodism, and brings it forward through contemporary evangelicalism. And it shows how, and I, I must say my eyes were open as I read this, how much of our, call it our modern culture, the culture that Wesley challenged, Methodist evangelicalism challenged, beginning in England and then the United States, with George Whitfield as well, how it really changed the way we imagine our lives to be, the, the sort of duties and obligations and moral compass of our lives. Does that sound right? That, that sounds exactly right. Um, and, you know, and let me be clear to anyone listening, I am an evangelical and have been for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, I, I really came to understand and identify fully as evangelical in doing my dissertation um, research on Hannah Moore. Uh, and you mentioned the book that I wrote about her later. And so this is a deep and rich tradition that is 300 years old when we talk about the evangelical movement proper. But it grew up alongside the Victorian age, which was an age that was the height of the British Empire. And, you know, America grew up alongside the British Empire as a, as a newer country. And so we inherited a lot of what evangelicalism brought to the British Empire, which came to America, and really is a big part of what it means in our understanding of not just being a Christian or an evangelical today, but even being an American. This is a shared heritage that we have that I try to unpack in the book. You know, let's make a distinction right now because most people realize that Protestants came to America to avoid persecution in England and Scotland and other places. But a lot of people just think, well, that's Puritanism. You know, that's that's Salem. That's the witchcraft trials. But yet there were other forms and richer forms of evangelicalism which populated the Americas, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think, you know, one important link is that Puritanism did contribute greatly to evangelicalism. And in the book, I kind of you know, pinpoint that 
that marriage, so to speak, with the, the tremendous influence that John Bunyan had, who was obviously a Puritan, uh, but his his use of imagination and right. language and metaphor and story, That's what's so surprising. Really, you know, we think of Puritans <laughs> as, you know, not being into that kind of thing. And, of course, and, and Matt, you know, you we know what it did to Hawthorne. It completely fired his imagination. Absolutely, and that's another. You know, he was you know a, a, century, a couple of centuries later, but he still that was his heritage, that was his tradition, and his writing came out of grappling with that. And we all share that heritage as well. Well, of course, you know, I was a Southern Baptist minister. Did yes. you, you remember that? I, I remember that's very much a part of your story. Um, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, went, to, went to Princeton Theological Seminary, but was the only evangelical student there. And <laughs> wore a cowboy hat and boots because uh, I had gone to the University of Texas. But uh, so let's let's drill down a little bit. When we talk about the shape of the American imagination as it's as it's connected to the evangelical influence, what kind of things come out? What what are sort of the the big themes that come out of that Mm. confluence? Well, I think one that I spend an entire chapter on in the book is this sort of big category that we would call and I call domesticity, um, which is, you know, is really just the the domestic realm. Um, It is, you know, homemaking, not just for women, but for families. There is an understanding that we have of, the primacy of the home and the family and sort of the sanctuary that that is, uh, you know, even, even if we are people who, uh, you know, are connected to community and hospitality, it's still often centered around the home. And that is something that came directly from the rise of evangelicalism and the Industrial Revolution and the British Empire that formed a certain vision of home life and family life. Uh, that we have inherited and still greatly influences us today in, in many ways that we don't think about, but we can see in a lot of literature and culture and artifacts. Well, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the fact that the evangelicals, though, also uh, insisted on certain rules and duties regarding domesticity. And in other words, they're... And- that they really created a structure for it. Yeah, so so we all come from, whether we're evangelical or not, we've been influenced by that sort of 19th century history that, that you know, was in both England and America, across the transatlantic. But evangelicals have taken it and made it, you know, I'm speaking generally, but in many ways more rigid, um, more oriented towards certain rules and expectations for men and women and masculinity and femininity. And and that on the other hand, we see people fighting those and resisting those today and debating and, and as part of the culture wars that are going on now. And yet we can never really understand, uh, you know, our, even our own positions or views on those if we don't grapple with the history and how Absolutely. we got those ideas. And we don't understand how significant the modern changes, for example, in certain strains of Methodist church. One, one group recently said that husband and wife are offensive terms. And, you know, this is obviously not where you are as an evangelical, not where I am as an evangelical Catholic for that, for that matter. But the fact that the, uh, in fact that some evangelicals have become what we what I would call liberal Protestants. Is that a good description? Mm. Yes, mm-hmm. that's a great description. They're, they're, and what what would you the say party. the main difference is between the those individuals and groups that have remained evangelicals and those who have slipped away to to secularism? Well, but, you know, that's not an area I really talk about in the book, but it's, been, it's one that's been lurking at the back of my mind through writing it. And, this is your and, next uh, book. Afterwards, yeah, maybe my next book, because well, we, I think we are entering what 
you know, historians might end up seeing as sort of the end of evangelicalism or a post-evangelical age. I don't know what that looks like, or I'm not certain about that, because I think we're in the midst of it. But the polarization and the division and the fracturing that we're seeing across all communities, including evangelicalism, I think, will result in some shifting, um, just like what you just pointed at, and, and that shifting may be permanent enough that, you know, we may be in a 300 or 500 year moment where some other movement or categories arise. Well, I'm hoping that at some point evangelical Protestants and evangelical Catholics join hands and create another great awakening. Mm. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, the two great awakenings uh, of the 19th century and what specific impact did they have on our imaginations? Mm. Well, of course, Amer- you know, American history is rooted in a series of great awakenings. Um, I cover a little bit of that. My expertise is more in the British side. And where I really talk about an awakening in evangelical history is, again, in, of course, it, the, the original ones were in the 18th century, but in the 19th century, especially in um, in Victorian England, again, that's my, my sort of my area of love, um, the evangelicals were so influential. Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce, I'm thinking of, 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 of those abolitionists and um and activists, they had such an important role in helping people to see um, the need for individual consciousness raising on. You call it conversion. Conversion. Yeah, conversion. Right. That that actually goes back to to the beginning of the evangelical um, revival with the Wesleys. You know, this this took place in a context in which there was a state church. And in a state church, you, it was so easy to just, by default, be a Christian because you were born to a Christian family and um, not have that individual conversion experience. And so one needed to be awakened to one's need for salvation, conversion, being born again. We have a lot of different metaphors that we use. And then later in the 19th century, that awakening um, took the form of not just, you know, just, not just salvific, but social and political to improve lives of, of slaves and workers and women and even animal welfare was birthed by the 19th century evangelicals, which a lot of my evangelical friends don't know. I'm talking with Karen Swallow Pryor about her new book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. It's a book that can be read with profit by Catholics as well as evangelicals or by anybody who cares about the history of our culture, how it became what it was, and why, you know, religion, Christian religion, is so deeply ingrained in in the way we think about the meaning of life, the duties of the individual, the responsibilities of government and culture. Now, you you make fascinating comments about sort of the history of the novel. And, of course, a lot of people will point to Pilgrim's Progress as a as a first novel, but you, you point out it's really not a novel. But you do talk a great deal about Samuel Richardson's 1740 Pamela, or Virtue <laughs> Rewarded. Could you tell our listeners about that? It's, it's almost like I paid you to set me up to talk about my favorite thing, Neil. <laughs> I didn't, but, uh, you know, the, the rise of the novel in the 19th century, the 18th century is just one of my favorite topics and uh, subjects I love to teach. And, and Richardson, because of this novel, is considered sort of the father of the English novel because he, as a Methodist, as a sort of, you know, first-generation evangelical Christian, whose conscience had been awakened and who cared about morality and wanted to share his religious beliefs and, and moral views and, and advocate virtue, as the subtitle suggests, wrote this novel about a young servant girl who really was completely powerless and alone, but, you know, had virtue, had parents who were encouraging from her from a distance to maintain her virtue, even though she was being harassed and chased by this 
you know, this licentious master who simply wanted, you know, wanted another uh, uh, notch in his belt. Um, and nobody at that time really thought that it mattered whether a poor peasant servant girl kept her virtue. I mean, who cares about those girls? Well, Richardson made readers care about Pamela, and in making them care about this fictional girl, he helped us to all care about ourselves and our own virtue and to see how important and powerful virtue is, no matter what your social class or what your sex or what your age. Um, and that really was, in some ways, it marks the rise of the modern individual. You know, but you did confuse me with this, with this sentence. You said, uh, the clear but unintended lessons of the novel are first virtue is not its own reward. What did you mean unintended? Because <laughs> is Richardson intending pe- readers to get that or not? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. So he, and maybe I didn't write it as clearly as I should, he was trying to elevate virtue, um, you know, as the title says, virtue rewarded. But I don't think he meant what his critics in particular, the more ah. aristocratic Henry Fielding, meant is, is in kind of a, um, uh, a monetizing or um, selfish way that, oh, I'm just going to be virtuous because that's going to get me, make me be most profitable for me personally or um, politically. And so yes. Richardson didn't mean that, but some people interpret him as saying, oh, this girl has just put a higher price on, as high a price as she could on her virtue by saying no for as long as she could until she could get the man to marry her. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> Makes, that made her more attractive. You do say that. Yes. yes. Uh, which I think is true. Uh, yes. Now, uh, there was this repost, another novel, as you say, by Henry Fielding. Tell us about that, and, and how did that play in the general public of England at the time? Hmm. So, yeah, so what we see in sort of this little dueling novels by Fielding uh, and Richardson is, in a way, a sort of dialectical conversation. You know, one extreme uh, represented by Fielding, who's just, you know, just promoting virtue and promoting um, this kind of purity that almost seems, you know, so idealistic as to be impossible. And then Fielding comes along and presents, writes a novel that instead of focusing on one, it does focus on an individual, Tom Jones, but it has a panoply of characters and takes place all over England. It's a, it's a comedy. It's hilarious. It's satirical. Whereas Richardson's were so sincere and earnest. And through the interplay of those two novels, playing off one another, arose kind of, well, I would say that they, they gave birth to Jane Austen, who sort of combines the best of both literary worlds in both style and content. It sounds like uh, they gave birth to the English novel, period. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, they, they, yes they, actually, they absolutely did, and I think that writers like Austen were able to sort of refine what both were doing and to combine them, and um, yeah, the rest is literary history. Now, you did not mention Shamala. Do you think that's less important than Tom Jones and the Fielding oeuvre? I actually, I actually think Shamala was very important. Shamala was a direct parody of Pamela. It was immediate and fast, and um, just like framing a tweet or a social media post, um, Shamala just turned you know everyone's perspective. As soon as you, as, you, as soon as you read Shamala, you can't not see Pamela in Pamela, um, which, you know, was a satirical job that Pamela, making, as the name Shamala suggests, um, implying that Pamela, she was, her virtue was just a sham. She was just trying to hold out um, for as long as she could to get the best reward she could, which was marriage to a wealthy aristocrat. Well, I'm talking with Karen Swallow Pryor about her latest book, which is entitled The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. And it's such a rich book that we're only to barely to page 100. So when we come back from our break, we're going to try to pick up the pace a little bit so that you, the listeners, can profit from 
so much that it's valuable here in Karen's work. We'll be right back. I'm back with Karen Swallow Pryor. We're talking about her book, The Evangelical Imagination. And Karen, one thing you stress throughout the book, especially in the latter half, is how evangelicalism created a kind of culture of improvement or even the invention of the idea of personal improvement. Now, how did that get started? Yeah, that that is such a fascinating piece of history. And rises right alongside modernity and the idea of of progress. And even the word improvement came from the English language and was first used in the context of improving one's land and property in terms of its usefulness and saleability and value. But by the time we get to the 19th century, you know, we've already talked about Pamela, and she played a a very important role in in promoting the idea that we can improve ourselves, both spiritually and even materially or maritally, by being a virtuous, good person. Um, And so there's much that we can actually do in order to improve ourselves. In the 19th century, we actually see a book by a a fellow named Samuel Smiles, which we can't make up, called self-improvement. And huh. a, we have bookshelves full of such books now, bookstores. <laughs> well, you know, it seems to me that we discussed earlier the evangelical emphasis on conversion. It seems to me the idea of personal improvement falls naturally from that. It, it absolutely does, and that's why I think it's so easy to get this mixed up with this more secular notion of progress and improvement, because with conversion... You know, if we understand that as a, as a starting point, a new birth, being born again, having a new life, of course that's going to entail growth and maturity, discipleship and sanctification. In a lot of ways, that's what Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is about, but right. it's in a very clearly spiritual context. Overcoming the I- slew of despond. Yes, who doesn't want to overcome that? <laughs> um, but when we have this or, you know, we have the Industrial Revolution and we have um, personal agency and modern autonomy all mixed in, then self-improvement becomes something less spiritual and more economic or more uh, relational or more political. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from the 19th century on, I mean, it was very easy, it became very easy to confuse discipleship and sanctification and spiritual growth with self-improvement and then, of well, course, self-help and it um, seems to me that, that it seems to me that we would not have gotten Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations without this impulse. No, you're right, and we wouldn't have even gotten the United States of America because this idea of of progress, of change, of creating and building something new, which is not bad, of course, um, but it is, was very much in the air. Again, it's, it's the part idea of, of the pursuit of happiness of Thomas Jefferson. And all of the uh, the self help that Benjamin Franklin wrote. Um, yeah, this is this is very much a part of American history as well. Early to bed, early to walk, to rise <laughs> makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Healthy and wise, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, well, how did all this become so? I mean, bastardized into the power of positive thinking. Well, I think, you know, there are, there are lots of ways to tell this story. One of them is um, sort of the rising secularism that took place with alongside modernity. One of the sources I quote and draw on heavily in the book is Charles Taylor, who wrote A Secular Age. Um, and, you know, his the story that he tells is centuries old, uh, and I think it's, it's exactly right. Um, but evangelicalism actually had a part to play in that, because evangelicalism does emphasize the individual over tradition and over authority, um, even just the individual need for conversion, which I think is, is true and right. But still, if, if we untether that emphasis on the individual from tradition and from authority and from tradition, right. then we end up, you know, we end up making TikTok videos about you know, the latest makeup hack or whatever. <laughs> well, the, the power of positive thinking came really 
was reduced to this idea that if I think something right. is good, it's good, regardless yeah. of what it actually is. <laughs> and we hear, you know, we hear those sentiments echoed in innumerable ways in our culture today. Now, I want to also point out and thank you for the fact that you did include some Catholic voices in your book, Charles Taylor being one, Flannery O'Connor being another, and Marshall McLuhan being a third. I've learned a lot from the Catholic seal, you included. <laughs> thank you. And I'm learning a lot from your book. The, uh, <laughs> the methods of improvement... Tell the story, because some of our listeners may not know it, surprisingly, of William Wilberforce. Hmm. Yes, so William Wilberforce was a 19th century evangelical. He um, was uh, he had a conversion experience in, in young adulthood. Uh, he was already uh, a young member of Parliament and fell in with the sort of evangelical crowd at the time, which included um, the former slave ship captain, um, John Newton, famous for writing that great hymn, Amazing Grace. And like most evangelicals, when Wilberforce became a Christian, he thought he should abandon all of his worldly um, ambitions and, you know, go into ministry. And Newton wisely advised him to stay in Parliament and see what changes he could bring about in the world through that. And that is what he did, and uh, because he did so, he helped to um, successfully spearhead uh, the campaign to abolish the slave trade in England. He is one of evangelicalism's great saints, and a lot of people don't know that history. Well, you've got conversion and improvement in the real sense. Exactly. I mean, he embodies all of those ideals of evangelicalism that are so, that are so good. He is a hero of mine, and yet it doesn't take much to kind of take some of that and then water it down with the rest of what's going on in the world and... and you know, end up with something far lesser than. Well, you end up avoiding the crucified Christ. Spoken like a good Catholic deal, yes, <laughs> yes. And Flannery O'Connor would certainly. Well, you know, speaking of that. Flannery, yeah. uh, you speak about something that was near and dear to Flannery, and that is manners. Was is mm. manners kind of one aspect of self improvement? It absolutely is. I mean, there's there's this whole again. Once social mobility became possible as an idea, uh, then people began to sort of enact whatever methods and strategies they could use, if not to actually achieve social mobility, to look like they had. And so, you know, adopting certain manners, uh, which is, has a history going back to the you know courtly literature of the Arthurian days, but has its own 18th and 19th century version. And, of course, you know, we, we still have that today with people trying to imitate uh, celebrities and and uh, Hollywood stars um, just to, because they want to be like those people um, and so adopt some of those manners. You know, I'm a pretty sentimental guy, uh, and I was very glad that you treated what you call evangelical sentimentalism because, you know, the heart has its reasons, as Pascal said. Mm -hmm. And tell us, though, the difference between the kind of sentimentality that true evangelicalism embraced and that which was sort of led to what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. Mm, that is such a good question. I mean, you know, as you, I mean, sentimentality just, you know, at its core refers to up to our feelings, our heart, emotions, which are good. God created us to have those. And so, you know, we don't, don't want to ignore those or suppress those. Um, they're so, they're important drivers of, of what, it, of ourselves as, as, as human beings. And yet, and I'm going to go back to what you said, um, as a good Catholic, if we skip over the crucifying part, if we skip over the pain, the sacrifice, or just simply the cost, then we end up with something that is not real. It, it, it is just cheesy or sentimental. I mean, I talk a lot in the in this chapter about art, and, and it's easy to see, you know, we want art that moves our emotions, but if it moves our emotions in a cheap, you know, shortcut way um, that doesn't grapple with the hard truth of reality, then it's just sentimental art. That's, Isn't that's that what we from, call kitsch? 
Yeah, exactly. That is what we would call kitsch. Um, kitsch moves us, but it moves us without requiring us to pay the cost. Well, and it, you know, uh, kitsch is dependent upon childhood memories. It's dependent on what you responded to when you were young. And, you know, St. Paul talks about putting away childish things. And in my opinion, that includes kitsch. Yes, yes. I, that, that's, a, that's a great connection between what, what Paul exhorts of us and what is so easy to fall into in our lives. Uh, and, and so many people don't even know that that's, that's what it is uh, because we're just a, well, a culture that doesn't discriminate, I guess, against... We're, we're know, surrounded with it. I mean, you walk into right. any church, Catholic or Protestant, by the way, and you see almost nothing but kitsch on the wall. Mm. Mm. And, you know, that's not 100% true, but that's my observation. Right. Let's call it anecdotal, right. but I think it's pretty true. Uh, you do, in fact, address the issue of painting, what you call narrative painting, and you specifically mention the great work of William Hogarth. Was he kind of a was he kind of a visual version of fielding? That's a great connection. I would actually say yes, he was, because he he made paintings that were satirical in some ways. I mean, he had a, a few series that were invoked the word progress, like the progress, uh, a harlot's progress or a rake's progress, and he was using that word progress ironically because he was showing the downfall of young people who make um, unwise choices by these series of paintings sort of showing their the stages of, of a life, uh, life that goes downhill. Uh, and so he used paintings to kind of present a story. Um, and he was very talented painting. His, his paintings are, are brilliant. But later in the 19th century, uh, we saw the rise of a lot of, like, just single paintings that were emphasized. They, they were technically excellent, um, but they were really trying to do something different, which was to tell some sort of a story through the picture. Uh, and they're wonderful paintings, but again, if we don't realize that that's not all that paintings are supposed to do and paintings can do other things, then we can get caught up in this idea that all art has to teach us a lesson or do something yes. and doesn't have to just be. That's another trap you can fall into Yes, in, in your yes. effort to promote religious art. And uh, you and I both know that Art has a religious power when it's not trying yeah. to preach at people. Exactly. And you so many people know, don't know that. <laughs> no. And also your your point, I think you make this point, that that very powerful religious art doesn't always have a happy ending. The crucifixion, right? Well, of course, that's not the end, but we still have to, we have to face that, right? We have to, we can't just... Um, bypass that, and so we have to have that discomfort and that that cost. Um, and and sometimes, you know, we don't have the happy ending in this life. So you're right. I'm going to ask you a little bit of a tangential question. If you had to name the top three evangelical novelists, and I'm not talking about the ones who preach at us, but just who embody the evangelical imagination. Who would you name? Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a really hard question. Because I know. I, it's interesting. I know because I, this is a... I, I mean, there are some evangelicals today who are writers and writing novels that I haven't read. I know they exist. Um, and I think that they're, they're writing good work. But I, I tend not to read them. All the ones that are coming to my mind who are even in the 20th century or, or even one now are, are, are Catholics. Deal. Well, you know, you, you do mention the bestsellers of Left Behind, uh, and we all know those aren't great looks works right. of literature, but they were extremely uh, influential. Right. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I'm wondering if Hawthorne wouldn't be an example of that. Even Melville. Hmm. Am I too far off base there? You know, I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, certainly Protestants. And you mentioned Thomas Hardy. You mentioned Thomas Hardy too. 
I mean, Thomas Hardy started out wanting to be an evangelical minister, then became an atheist, and then agnostic. And, you know, I, I he has it in there somewhere. I, I, I hope that he didn't lose his faith entirely, but I suppose we can't know the side of heaven. Well, I love his poem, The Oxen. It's one of my favorite Christmas poems. I haven't read poems. that one in a while. Yeah. I know I've read it. Hmm. He, he was a great poet, too, um, as well as a now, novelist. Let's let's connect all this to something that happened in my lifetime that I don't think existed too much before, and that is the so-called prosperity gospel. I mean, is that the idea? Of, is that self-improvement gone off the rails? No, that that's exactly it. And of course, any you know good evangelical would deny that they adhere to the prosperity gospel, but. Um, this is the problem with, with culture, and it's not even a problem, it's just a reality, is that, you know, it is the water we swim in, it is the air we breathe, and evangelicalism today is greatly influenced by by the prosperity gospel, which is rooted in this idea of, of self-improvement and progress. Again, they aren't all the same thing, uh, but they easily overlap and bleed into one another. And that's why just looking at this history, looking at these terms, looking at these categories helps us, I think. It can prevent us oh, from falling does. into these errors. It helps us to right. contextualize exactly what's going on. And yeah. uh, I must say that one of my favorite chapters in your book is your last on the on rapture because you get personal there. You talk about how you grew up believing very, per, I get fervently in rapture that one day there's going to be a bunch of people go go up to heaven and others left behind. Why did you include that sort of personal story there at the end of your book? Mm. You know, that personal story is actually, it, it's the perfect example of what I'm trying to show throughout the whole book, which is, and it really might, you know, I don't write about the rapture in the book to advance a particular hermeneutical no, interpretation right. of the word, right? I mean, I don't even care, I say that, <laughs> about how it's interpreted in the various schools. But growing up believing it would take a certain form, I didn't know that that was an interpretation. I didn't know that there were other Christians and longer traditions within the church that that interpreted entirely differently. And so that was sort of a touchstone moment for me in my adulthood to realize, oh, wait, this is a novel interpretation. It's not universal. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. That's not the point. But the point is that it was an underlying assumption that I didn't know was an assumption. And there's just so much in our in our faith and in just being human um, that can be described that way. And so for me, that was a perfect anecdote to illustrate what I'm talking about. Then you, you were... You tried out Frank Peretti's novel, This Present Darkness, from 1986. Tell our listeners yeah. about your reaction to that. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things, if you're a Christian and you like literature, people walk up to you and say, oh, you'll... Have you read? <laughs> have you read? <laughs> yes, have you read? Like, oh, they say, oh, I love C.S. Lewis, too. And I'm like, well, yeah, he's great, but there's so much more. Um, you know, and you know, so I've had... I remember a series of really best-selling novels about the end of the world, and nobody could understand why I hadn't read them, nor was I interested in reading them. Right. Exactly. And once I read, you know, somebody handed me this, you know, it was, and, and you, you know, I understand, like, that was probably one of the first, you know, later 20th century works of Christian fiction, let's say, that, and, and, People, it wasn't as big a, a booming business as it is now, and so somebody just thought I would really enjoy this novel, and I don't think I got three or four pages in, and it was just overloaded with adjectives and adjectives and very bad writing, um, so I just didn't want to read it at all, and then I had no idea what it would become and how influential it would become. I think one of the most important points you make in, in the book, which I really wish you would write another book on and really flesh it all out, and it's on page 257, you write, the best stories aren't about the ending. The best stories are about how, how we get there. And I've tried to 
share that idea with so many students and, and friends and acquaintances who, you know, they don't like Madame Bovary because of the ending. You know, they, they don't like Anna Karenina because of the ending. And these are two of the greatest novels ever written. And right. I try to Those talk to them about the, the how. Could you, right. could you help me with that explanation? <laughs> I'll do the best I can. Yeah, we really, we really are averse in our lives, I guess, to, to unhappy endings. And where else would we want to have an unhappy ending but in fiction, in my mind, right? Because right. it's better there than in real life. And so that, I think, is, is if people can understand and, and just become acclimated to the idea that we can learn so much through the how, um, it's that, that that does translate over into life. I feel like some of the saddest, most tragic stories that I've read, which are my favorite, um, have really helped me to understand and interpret my own everyday experiences, which, you know, admittedly are generally much less dramatic than that, uh, because it is about the how, and our daily lives are about the how. If we're Christians, we already know the ending, uh, but we have a lot to get through before we get there, and it, it is that how, it is the how of every day and every hour and every minute that we live our lives that matters, um, and I think good books and art teach us to focus on that how. Because we need to know how. Exactly. It's we need some understanding about that. Skill. Right, right. We are not naturally good <laughs> creatures who know how to do things right. We have to learn and practice and, and receive the grace of God in our attempts. I think, so. you know, we, if we could just touch on the short stories of Flannery Connor, uh, I've learned a lot from Flannery about how evil exists in everyday life. And how to see the evil in myself, my behavior and attitudes, but also how to understand it in others and also anticipate, not so I won't, I'm not wounded by it. That, that is a great gift that O'Connor offers. And then she also, you know, in the face of that, shows us how unexpected and sudden and undeserved that moment of grace can be. And that readies us. To receive that as well. Well, think of Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, which is a great novel, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it it just contains the how of so many things, of the failure of fidelity, of the failure of chastity, the power of envy, right? Mm-hmm. The the power of mother love. I mean, it, it just... Mm-hmm. And also, the way in which communities become uh, a pack. A pack. Mm. Of, yeah. To, to jump on the, the sinner in their midst. Mm. Now, The Scarlet Letter is such a great example of a book that is all about the how. Because the plot itself is, you know, if people commit adultery. That's basically the plot. It doesn't end well. Um, but it's all... It, 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 so focused on the how and an understanding and interpreting and um, and seeing all of the the different perspectives in the in the story and that's the things that we can't see or know all the thing, the way that Hawthorne constantly says well you know some said this some said that or it appeared this he doesn't give us any real hermeneutical certainty for a lot of things that happen in the story but we're pro- we're practicing and processing the way that we process and practice everything in our everyday lives. Yeah, and Scarlet Letter teaches us the how of dealing with our own shame. Mm. The how of, of living, continue to live a full life in spite of having been shamed. Absolutely. Yeah, we and can. She is, uh, she is such a powerful image of endurance, right? Yes. Yes. Now, am I repeating what you wrote in your book called Book, or in any of your other books? <laughs> no, but I do have an edition of that I edited and annotated of the private letter. So, really, um, you can 
Yes, yes. Oh, we should do a I show. Haven't. We should do a show on the Scarlet Letter. I think it's such an important book. We absolutely could. I um, it's a six. I did six classic works of literature in a hard cloth volume set. Well, they're you know individual. Who published titles, that? But, um, who published that, Karen? That was B and H Publishing. Okay. B and H of the Southern Baptist Convention. So yeah, you'll have to well, check those out and. I will pursue that, and I'll pursue you. We're talking about this really fine book that Karen wrote and published recently. The title, again, is The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis, published by Brazos, a division of Baker Publishing. And we've got a few minutes left, Karen. How has... The reaction been to the book? What kind of feedback are you getting? The, the feedback has been tremendous. You know, of course, my publisher Brazos writes is a you know general audience, um, a trade book, not an academic book. Um, but it, you know, I'm drawing on a lot of academic and literary sources. But my target audience is what they've been responding. A lot of these things are new to them. Charles Taylor is new to them. The social imaginary and this evangelical history is new to them. But if they are, they are understanding it, which is like music to a teacher's heart. Um, and also what I'm trying to do in the book is to not like give an exhaustive list of all the metaphors and images that formed evangelicalism, but right. to teach people how to see them elsewhere. And that's the reaction that I'm getting that people are like, the, the lights are going on and they're, they're able to see the power of metaphor and images and stories and other examples all around us because they are all around us. And that was kind of the point of writing the book, which is, to just help people to, to think about these things that they may be had before. Well, that's exactly what we want on the other end of writing and publishing a book, are people keying in on the how that you've, you've shown them, how to see these this influence yeah. of the evangelical imagination. Well, thanks for letting me um, talk about how, that, how I did that, how it works, and hopefully well. others will be encouraged to, to engage in that how as well. You did it brilliantly. And again, Karen Swallow Pryor, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on Church and Culture. And I guarantee it won't take very long for you to be invited back. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. And to all you who are listening, I'll be back on this day at this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.